Welcome to the 985 Nerds Podcast, where we spend some time with the operators of the 146.985 repeater to learn more about who they are and how they got involved in ham radio. TV repairman, retired NJN sound engineer, and captain of IFIS, Bob Wick, N2HM, part of the original Friday Nighters, has been licensed since 1968. Today, Bob is our 985 Nerd. 985 Nerds. Nerds. N2HM, this is N3YLI. Good evening, Bob. How are you? N3YLI, N2HM, via the, what would Joe call it? The uh, the dirty mode or something like the that? The dark side. The dark side. There we go. The dark side. <laughs> hey, it's modern technology, and who'd have thought back in the 70s that we could do broadcast quality audio with video from home? Bob, why don't you tell us a little bit about how you got started in ham radio? Well... Joe Fell had a big part in it. Joe lived next door to Lou Green, who worked often with my dad on construction. My dad was a painter. Lou was construction. And also, Joe's grandparents were customers of my dad. So the Fells let dad know that their grandson, Joe, was a ham radio operator. And I guess Lou did as well. I had already learned two-thirds, at least, of the code because in Boy Scouts, they had a wigwag contest. And they found out that I knew a lot of the code because dad had been a radio op during the war. And we had learned Morse code by him either sitting in the kitchen to me in the dining room or the other way around. And he could send it with a flashlight. And then when the Boy Scout Jamboree came and they were having the wigwag contest, which is information with Morse code and flags, I knew more than anybody else. So I got drafted. So over the next couple hours, I learned the best of the code and the rest of the code. And yeah, we won. Then I met Joe when he was 14. He had a broken arm went over to his house and I couldn't believe that this guy with the voice of God was maybe five foot, maybe 110 wet, but that began a long friendship. And of course, through Joe, I met Harry with the Friday nighters and my neighbor half mile down the road, Bert Scavellius, WA3JYU became part of that mix. And it has been a lifelong friendship with Joe and Bert and Chuck, but also ham radio was pretty much the foundation for everything that I do. By age 16 and learning to be able to drive, I began doing TV repair during the summer on Long Beach Island at Jim's TV, and then I'd go back to school in Pennsylvania. Then I worked for Jimmy after school for after high school for 13 years till TV repair was coming at dead end, and then I went with New Jersey Network for 26 and a half years. But pretty much. Most of my life has been founded by ham radio, but of course, Harry, W3FDY, would open up his house for us on Friday nights, and we would all go in there, and he'd teach us things in ways that we wouldn't forget. And like anything else, if what you enjoy is worth learning, you want to get other people involved as well, and ham radio has just been one of those great parts of my life. So you were part of the original Friday Nighters? Uh Uh-huh. There's actually a picture I don't have, I probably have it here on the computer. I could probably bring it up later, but there was an article done in the, the Daily Lack of News in Westchester where we are in Harry's front room with the blackboard and there's a four shot of Bert and Joe and Chuck and me behind the blackboard and then Harry in the foreground. And it was a nice article. Yeah, Chuck actually shared that and that'll actually be part of his his page when we produce it. So you had, you had mentioned Long Beach Island. Did you go up there for the summer? Both of my grandparents had homes on Long Beach Island. Mom's parents, that was actually their home on 63rd Street in Brant Beach on the ocean side. And then my dad's parents built on the bay side out on the point in 1931. So they were only four blocks apart, basically. And eventually at the Ship Bottom Church, mom and dad met each other dad was seated behind her and uh, i guess his eyes were drilling through her head and then dad's sister let him know that mom was working at the mrs pettibone store on the 62nd so he went over to get tomatoes and came home with a tomato they uh, eventually got married but yes long beach island has been a part of my life since i was a kid i've never spent a summer in pennsylvania every summer i've been at the shore my heart has always been along the water, although, you know, Pennsylvania, of course, means a lot to me with the gang and the experiences there. But my heart has always been down here. And ultimately, I came down here permanently. Both my grandparents are gone now. So the properties were sold and you can't own anything over there for 
probably less than a million bucks anymore. So I now I live in Manahawkin, which is seven miles west. And I have a little sailboat named IFAS, which stands for It Floats, It Sails. It's pre-dented, pre-scratched, and I sail it out from West Creek. I have a slip at DNS Marine in West Creek. And in fact, uh, Jim, AF3Z may be coming down Wednesday because I'm pulling her either Wednesday or Thursday. Joe couldn't make it, but if Jim gets down, I'll leave her in for Wednesday, but I'll be pulling her on Thursday before the weather gets bad. But yep, Long Beach Island is, is a big part of my life. But you were born here in Pennsylvania? I was born in Westchester at what was Memorial Hospital, which no longer exists. It's a convalescent center, I think, now. And we lived out. I've always been a man with that identity. I'm an identical twin, so phone would ring and, Bill, no, Baba, I'll get him. Had an extant phone number, a Downingtown address, went to a Westchester High School, get my ham license. You know, just say, JYT, you're, you're Bert, right? No, no, he's, he's JYU, I'm JYT. And then working in NJN, being part of the boomer generation, Bob, what? No, wrong Bob, because half the people there were named Bob. So anyway, <laughs> it's, it's truly an identity thing. What influenced you to get your license then? Well, first, dad having been a radio op in the war, he helped me with a code and also gave one Christmas, he gave my brother a telescope, which has expanded that my brother actually has a sliding roof on his house now, which slides back. And he has, I think, like a 12-inch computer-controlled telescope. But he gave me a Halley Scratchers S120. And I began to listen to different stations, shortwave listing and all. And then, of course, the gang on 80 meters on full fidelity AM, that was always a draw, including Harry, who was the biggest gun on 80 meters. Um, and, of course, meeting up with Joe and Chuck and Bert that everything just kind of snowballed because it was they were great friends and it was a great hobby and it just grew on us. We even did a field day several times up at the hill, but field day 69 was, was a big one. We actually camped up there all week. It was a lot of fun. How far did you go in Boy Scouts? Oh, not that far. Uh, was in there for a while. But then, of course, ham radio started taking over. We actually, uh, and the crew, the, the troop, actually, some of the leaders had some issues too. It was just better than not, not be there. So I, I, I give a lot of credit to the Boy Scouts. I even learned about left-handed smoke shifters, things like that, that everybody kind of like polarized resistors at Radio Shack. So <laughs> what's one big memory you have of Harry? <laughs> well, there are plenty, but as I had mentioned earlier, he would instruct in a way that he would hopefully do it in a way that you, he'd only have to do it once and you wouldn't forget. We're sitting up in the shack up on the hill and we're making up dipoles. So I have, I, I guess it was RG8, not RG58, because I am, I've cut back the jacket and I'm slowly unweaving the braid, knowing that the center conductor will go to one side of the insulator and the braid will go to the other. And undoing the braid took me a good, a good 30 minutes. And I hand it to him, smiling. You know, Bob, there's an easier way to do that. And he cuts the cable. We're back just now. He strips the cable, holds it up vertically, pushes the braid straight down to the jacket, which makes a hole. And he pulls the center conductor through and pulls it through in like, in like 15 seconds. And I'm like, oh, I just wanted to make sure you'd never forget. Well, that's 50 years ago. And believe me, I have never forgot. Other times we'd be on 40 meters with the uh, five element wide space, 40 meter wide beam, which burnt the leaves off of the tree in the front director. And you'd see birds lifting their feet up and down on the, on the driven element. But we talk on someplace in the Midwest. What's it with you today, Harry? You're only 40 over nine. Well, he would change that <laughs> the beast which is now in joe's basement had been in birds for a while it was quite a piece of equipment in fact i have a picture to my left here a four shot of us at joe's but we're holding pictures of harry in front of the beast on the hill years ago and the last time i saw it anywhere near operating was in bert's basement he had it to the point that you could he could power up the one side and you'd see the filaments and come up and uh the panel lights come on and I got misty because uh, it was something to see her wake up again. It's like seeing an old airplane wake up again for the first time in, a, in decades. And Bert did a great job getting the RF deck done. And now it's over at Joe's. And that, that's one of his main projects is to get the beast back on the air. That will, that will be indeed a, a Friday night gathering celebration when that actually happens. And it will. It will. What was your first rig? DX60. 
and the Halley Scratchers S120, which of course you could park it in the center of 80 meters and hear everything on each side. The BFO was such that you turned this knob and it actually put the IF into oscillation and that's how the BFO worked. And it did not work well at all for CW. So I then got an HR10 and built that. So my official, I suppose, ham station for my novice days was the DX60B and the HR10. The DX60 had suffered much of my learning experience. It's, I still have the original DX60, which can get on air, but it shows all the things I learned with damaging. And uh, Joe actually gave me a couple years ago a mint condition DX60 and HG10. And I have two HR10s here. So this coming straight key night, I will wake it up as the as the as the uh, rig for straight key night. And what were you running as an antenna? Well, the first antenna was made out of aluminum wire, and it was tied to my chimney at the center of mom and dad's house, and the other end went to the peak of my neighbor's house. And I was feeding it with speaker wire twin lead, which was the worst thing in the world with a DPDT toggle switch. I eventually learned the importance of using the proper transmission line and all of that. In fact, that'll bring up another story. I had a knife switch later on to ground the antenna and a storm was coming. So I, oh, I forgot to ground the antenna. So I run downstairs and I pull the knife switch out of the operate switch position and pull it down to ground. And I hear this snap, boom, thunder, right? Cool. <laughs> so I wait a couple seconds and I put it back up in the operate position and bring it down again, snap. Boom. Well, I did this five or six times. Mom shouts down the stairway. What are you doing? I said, hey, come on down. I'm, I'm making thunder. You cut that out. So that was a, a fun thing. Also, my dad was the stickler. And so am I now about turning off lights when you're not in a room. And at this point, I had a 500 watt Globe King and I'm on the air and dad comes home. You left the porch light on again. No, I didn't. The porch lights on. I went off transmit. The light goes out and the parents, I said, it's off, right? How'd you do that? I said, it's called RF, dad. I lit the porch light up on 80 and the basement lights on 40 and neighbors down the road were only upset because they only heard one side of the conversation coming through their AM radio. Uh, but, you know, that's some of the fine. And I also had a, a PA system in the heat ducts. It was hot air heat in the house. So I had speakers that I would just talk through the heat ducts. So Bill Nagel, W3DUQ, when he was alive one morning, I'm talking to him. And so he says, all right, pot it up. So you wake up, Bill, wake talking. My brother, well, it's resonating through the heat ducts. And another time I came home from uh, Willie's with some duck eggs. So I fried them in the shack on air and ate them on air. So, yeah, dumb geek stuff, you know. How many watts were you running that was causing all that RF interference? Well, the, the Globe King 500 was like what Bert has. It's it's 540 watts in, about you know, at least three and a three, 340 out. And um, that's another rig that suffered from my earlier days. I've learned a lot at, at equipment and people's expense. I wish I had all of the equipment back that I have destroyed over the years. But that's, I. they say you learn by your mistakes. Well, guess what? I get tired of learning. But at least now I can save people. It's the Hippocratic Oath. First, do no harm. You know, you, I tell people now, like even I'm involved with some of the other broadcast stations, you've been off three, you've been off th for three hours. So I'm going to take 15 minutes and sit here and analyze it before I do a do stupid thing. Because, you know, first thing people do is start turning knobs and all that. One guy comes to mind. You've been messing with the transmitter again. No, I haven't. Well, look at this. Because I always kept the log in his transmitter log of the transmitter settings. Look at these numbers in the log from the last time I was here. And look at the transmitter. Of course, he'd never admit, you know. Liability is the ease at which somebody tells an untruth. And he was one of, other than a politician, he's right at the top. So so what? what is your occupation? Officially, I am, an, I am now retired. I was a TV repairman, as I mentioned, with Jimmy for 13 years. And I had my business for five till it was time to get out of TV repair. And I worked, started part-time with NJN, New Jersey Network, public television here in New Jersey. Two days a week, I was going up to play transmitter part-time and got to the point that I was even shutting down my store in the middle of the summer to go play transmitter. But I knew I had to make a change and I wanted to find out whether I liked it there and whether they liked me. So that was February of 85. They hired me full-time in November of 85. And I still had my business till April of 86. But then from April of 86 to... 
NJN's demise at the end of June 2011. I was blessed to work in transmitter and EFP in uh, field production. And then they sent me to South Jersey News for five years, where I started out as a sound tech and then a shooter and an editor. And then I was putting YRS on the air. So I had to come home for two weeks to finish up before we had to hit air. We had to hit air on March 27th of 95. And while I'm home, they asked me to come in and put beta in South Jersey. I said, it'd be only a day. I said, yeah, well, you're killing me because it's one more day. I can't work at home. But I also knew I'd never be going back to South Jersey. And that was true. Report to Trenton. So once YRS was on the air, I reported to Trenton every day, which was an hour and five drive each day, each way. But that was a blessing, too, because I dipped into everything. Sometimes I was engineering. Sometimes I'd be up a tower. Other times I was shooting and editing most of my time with news. And a microwave truck, satellite truck, got to do some really cool stuff and met some really brilliant people, learned a lot. It was a great career. But that all ended end of June 2011 when the state shut us down and 130 of us walked out the door for the last time. Since then, I'm back here with WYRS, which has been on the air 28 and a half years. We're an all-volunteer, not-for-profit FM station, and we're now actually two full-service stations. YRS is on 90.7, WNLJ is on 91.7. And there's five translators, so you can hear YRS in your car, at least, from basically Ocean City, New Jersey, up to just south of Ringo's, with a little bit of a no-man's land on 195 between the New Jersey Turnpike and the junction of 195 and 295. And we're on 24 hours a day, have been for 28 and a half years. And today, I had to go in the backup. My original slate was a WJRZ, which is now my backup, and the main transmitter went down today. One of the caps in the power supply decided to go south, so that's on the module which is the primarily one for it deciding it's automatic, what its power should be. And then what's normally 50 volts went down to like five. So it went off the air. Anyway, that was fixed a little while ago and it hasn't called me. So I guess that was the problem. So nowadays, YRS takes most of our time because for the most part, it's Nancy and me. Our st any staff that's still with us have been working from home since covid and, you know, it's a struggle. Of course, nowadays, everybody has all kinds of commitments and it's harder to get people involved. But being on 24-7, programming it and keeping things maintained is pretty much a full-time job. It's basically working with a two-year-old that refuses to grow up. We're also blessed. The main transmitter site is actually historic. It was Marine Coastal Station WSC. WSC was a Marine Coastal Station, ship-to-shore station for decades. Actually, the very first transcontinental communication system was between Tuckerton and LV's Germany. The French and the Germans built the tower in West in Tuckerton in 1913-1914 and supposedly our government didn't know it was there for two years. I don't believe that one did. I think it's one of these, if you build it, we will steal. Even uh, local folk folklore has that the, the command to a St. Lucy, the Lusitania, came out of that site. It was on Hickory Island, which is south of Tuckerton, and in 1955, they shut down there, dropped the tower to make Mystic Islands, and they moved to the site that WYRS now owns. And it continued to be a ship-to-shore station until 1978. Then some other venture capital startup companies tried to do work there. The last tried to do shortwave internet, but satellites killed that, and... In 2003, they couldn't even make payroll, and the whole site was for sale for 125,000 bucks. And with some minor miracles for us, since we were bringing in two dollars and 68 cents an hour, we were able to purchase it. And 19 months later, it was paid off, and then we were able to fix the frighteningly bad-shaped tower. Chuck could tell you about that. Began transmitting from there in 2006, and have been ever since. It's also incredible, shortwave station because if it's on salt water and the, one, the 160 guys are coming tomorrow to put the antennas back up for the winter contest there'll be two slopers off the tower one going to the northeast one to the southwest a delta loop at the tower they can beam either northeast or southwest or omni and there are eight beverage antennas out in the woods for receive plus a quad vertical array so it, it's quite an operation and the walls are plastered with plaques and w2gd is if not first place each year they come very very close so we'll see which competition is this one it's the one it's all the 160 contests there are actually there's three cw contests and then there's one slot bucket that typically the south jersey dx association does they didn't do it last year because of covid but the, the, the w2gd gang are from frankfurt radio club 
and they'll be there for the three CW contests, and then the SJDXA will be there for the slop bucket. So it's a real it's a real privilege to have a historic site. In fact, straight key night, I will operate. We have a call W two WSC, which is as close as we can get to the original call, and people will come on. Are you actually at? Yes, and like up in New England, the uh, the uh, Marine Coastal Station up there has a W one call, and we always have a good time talking with them. WLO down in uh, Alabama was actually a control control station for WSC for a while. In fact, if you've ever seen uh, Hunt for Red October, if you listen to the Morse code, it's WLO. And they actually were control for WSC for a while years ago, but Renee's dead. So so cool stuff. And it's a, it's a beautiful site, 23 acres, 300-foot uh, Ron 55G tower, 460-foot towers, an 1,800-square-foot block building and 23 acres of basically mud that uh, you're surrounded by the wildlife refuge. So now that the bugs are gone, it's actually nice. I actually camped down there last week, one night at my tent. So, yep. And you're an avid tower climber. Well, I climb as, as is necessary. And uh, people say you're scared of heights. Of course, that's that's why I'm still alive. But I was just up the tower less than a month ago because the, the 200 foot lights, there's a beacon at the top and then there's two sets of side lights at 100 foot, 200 foot. And one of the lights went out at 200. So I went up to change them both. It was a nice day. I never climb unless somebody's around. Uh, Joel was down from Pennsylvania. So while I was, while he was there staying a couple of days to do some FT8 stuff, uh, I went up while he was on the ground watching. Matter of fact, I got a video on my phone I can show that uh, me climbing. So yes, I'm, I'm blessed. I'm 70 now, but um, I'm very fortunate to still be able to do what I want to do. I had rotator cuff surgery about six years ago, which put me out of commission for six months. Never been in that situation before. And about a year before I had my strength back, but I'm, I'm very fortunate right now to, to be back with the strength I have. And I've been actively losing weight the last year, which has made a big difference too, because every year towers get 10 foot higher. And the ocean gets three degrees colder and we get 10 pounds heavier. And unfortunately, the last is often true for many of us. So I plan to have less of me in 2023. So, What advice do you have for somebody who's a new, new climber or looking to do that? Well, learn all you can about safety. Trust your gear. Never rush. You don't want to get up there tired. It's a good thing to take some water with you because if you breathe in a bug and you have nothing to get rid of it, that's a problem. But even equally important, if somebody else fills your jug, my red and white small jug, it's also a good thing if you check the jug before you fill it, because at 300 feet, you might be drinking something that's got baking soda in it. The other thing is, if you wear glasses, make sure you put string around them, because it's a long climb down from 300 feet. Take an extra 9 sixteenths half inch, and all, and, or better yet, Take a wrench that's open in box and the, the box then you tie to a rope. That way you don't lose it. Make sure you have sufficient tools and always have a ground crew. Although sometimes, depending on what you do, having a ground crew is worse than not having them because people who can't tie knots, it's death when you've got to undo 20 knots because they don't know how to make a, best, a basic knot. But basically, you know, when you're up, when you're above 30 feet, you fall, you're going to die. So let's just not be stupid. And if you're scared of heights to the point that you're going to seize, don't climb. I've had times when I haven't climbed for a while, you get up there and your, your arms lock up, your hands get like a crow's hand and you have to rub your, your arms to get their fingers to sleeve. And actually there was a, an, an article years ago about people's legs. If you stand too much in a tower that, you know, Chuck read it at the same time I did when he was at Guam, it was uh, quite enlightening. Usually, uh, well, my dad thought I was crazy for climbing the tower. I said, yeah, you who was a house painter your whole life and you painted houses on 40-foot ladders and you think I'm crazy? Ta ladders fall, dad. Towers don't usually fall. I mean, he was up near uh, Eagle one time painting a barn and the ladder shook. He looked down and there was a cow scratching himself on the ladder. He said, I had one brush and one shot. So he hit the cow with the brush. And after that, he'd put a barrier around the bottom. And he always put... Uh, stakes in at the base of the ladder so it wouldn't kick out but yeah if you're going to climb if if you can have somebody else who's more experienced and you don't know what you're doing fine don't don't make a situation worse uh, i don't climb that often but 
I do, and I'm blessed that I still can. In fact, I've got to put a 220 antenna up for Joe when he's ready to do it. When he says do it, we'll do it. But I'd like to get it done before my hands freeze to the tower. So time is getting short. Well, you know, uh, again, some towers are more difficult to climb than others. And some of them have cables that you can bolt on. And nowadays, OSHA actually wants you to always be belted on. So that's that's a pain when you're climbing. But I do have a Y strap with a big D clips where I, I can as on the way up. But it really is a pain in the neck to do that, especially on my tower, because it's just an 18 inch face. So you can hug it as you're going up. So, But if OSHA if OSHA's around, you got to be careful because... I don't know how they can find you for doing stuff in your own tower, but I guess they can. What's the highest you've climbed? The highest I've actually climbed versus the highest I've been. I've climbed close to 500 feet on the JRZ tower up in Weartown. But when I worked at NJN, the Channel 52 tower was 989 feet. But you climbed up about 40 feet to a triangular shaped elevator car, which could kind of house three people if you sucked your stomach in. Um, but I've, I'd go to the fifth platform, which is 856 feet from the 856. You could see Philadelphia, New York, and Lakehurst. And then the last hundred plus feet you have to climb, which I had to do several times because it wasn't those uh, transmission lines for the transmitter were eight inches around, looked like huge copper pipe because it was, but they're pressurized with nitrogen. And we had a nitrogen leak at the top, which the tower guys couldn't find. And one February morning, and it's screaming cold. And the nitrogen is just screaming out of the tanks. So I said to Larry, I'm going up. I think I know where it is. At the top of the tower, the transmission line is vertical. Then it goes horizontal. Then a short vertical. Then a short horizontal. And then up. It's actually an expansion, um, kind of like a bridge. And there's those elbows. One of the welds on the elbows had broken and you could hear it going out. But that's also where New Jersey 101.5 kicks is. And I'm up there in freezing weather and Lou gets on the radio. Bob, what? Kicks wants to know how long you're going to be up there. They want to come up back, back up to pull power. Uh, Lou, put the phone near the radio, sir. Done. All right. You ask them how fast they would like me to work at a thousand feet in sub-freezing weather and whether they'd like to be responsible. Uh, Bob, they say, take your time. <laughs> <laughs> but the first time I ever went up there, you know, I'm at, I'm at a thousand feet almost, and I'm watching helicopters go by at 500. You're looking down in helicopters and there's always wind up there and putting up microwave gear for remotes for elections and all. Sometimes it was so brutal or when hurricanes are coming and you had to set things up and believe me, it's screaming up there. And when it's ice, it's even worse. Uh, it, it's quite an experience to be up a tower that high uh, when it's nasty, nasty weather. And sometimes being up there, you're actually literally above the clouds. You're looking down on cotton. So it's quite a few. But so the answer to your question, uh, I've been I've been to 900 feet because that was the base of the antenna, but I didn't climb it hand over hand all the way up. Well, it's, again, you take your time. And of course the 52 tower, it was only climbing the first 40 and then climbing the last 120. There's actually video online of guys that do the 2,000 foot sticks. In fact, somebody, one guy they show, he gets 20,000 bucks every time he changes bulbs on the top of the 2,000. About how long would it take to climb? Depends on you, I suppose. But when I go up 300, I might take 30 minutes because again, you don't want to get up there tired. Yeah. I'll go 30 or 40 feet and build off a little bit, look around, maybe drink a little bit of water or whatever, and then do a little more and build off. There's no... No sense in rushing up and you can always get off the tower, but if you do it the wrong way, you may, maybe the last time you do that. In fact, in West Creek, I kid people, I could jump off and bury myself at the same time because this mud. So I just go down, I'd be at least six foot down, but I'd be parked vertically. So <laughs> what is your current rig? Well, Nancy always wanted a 940S when she first got her license. I said, I'm sure you do. Cause back then they were like three grand radios. I got one from one of my friends probably 10 years ago that needed work for 350 bucks. So she's got a 940 and I have a, a I have a, a, a Yesu 767. The AM rig is actually a modified DX100. I never could get the low end where I wanted it. So I'm actually screen modulating it. It's only putting out probably 20 watts of DX100, but then it goes into a, a Warrior Linear, which is one of the Heath kits. So I have about 120 watt carrier. 
but I can make it DC to light if I wanted to. I don't, but I keep it down. So um, I was given an FT-101. That's down at the site. I've got an old T, not a T-60, but it's a, one of the earliest night. I think it's a T-50. T anyway, it's it's not, it's a night. And I have a old uh, Hallicrafters SX-25, I think, which is actually a pretty good receiver. Um, I got a, another Kenwood. I got a small um, ICOM that I picked up at our Chinese auction last year. But here at the, here at the house, it's uh, I use either Nancy's 940 or my 767. And down at West Creek, it's the 101. But the DX60 is in Iraq down at the West Creek site. And I will roll that into the main room on uh, straight key night. And I'll have that on the air. What antenna are you running at house at the house? Inverted V. And I have a like a 12-minute Yagi on two pointed towards you guys, which sometimes works depending on Tropo. And I have a vertical for two and 440 also. Um, of course, both my truck and the Suburban are capable of getting on HF. I've got a Hustler with the uh, screw-on uh, radiators. Radio, yeah, what's the word I want? Resonators. And then I have an Outbacker on the truck. So I can get on HF from either of the two vehicles, plus two meters, of course. When Joe gets down next spring now, it looks like we're going to do some 20 or 40 meter work from the sailboat. We'll load up one of the stays. And actually, one of my ham friends here has a friend who owns an island in Little Lake Harbor Bay. So we're hoping to set up a special event station on a grid that's never been enacted we'll do that sometime next year when joe's here also we'll get him on marine mobile we'll do some cw while we're sailing if the wind's not too strong and you operate cw you're talking straight key night so you obviously do what is your favorite mode of operation probably cw um the next thing is am very limited sideband i've never done digital uh, but there's just the knob well when we all got licensed, Morse code was all that you could do. So it's a second language. People are astounded. Like you do Morse code when you're driving. Say, yeah. It's just like talking to you. I'm looking straight ahead. I mean, my right hand is on the steering wheel, but my fingers are on the iambic. It's right next to the, to the wheel. So I, I can be basically sending and, and have my right thumb right on the wheel, steering wheel at the same time. I'm looking straight ahead and it's just, it's no more distracting to me than talking to you while we're driving. Cause we always copied in our head, but yeah, there's, there's a novelty to Morse code. And of course I'm not really a contester, but field day, I always do CW because you get two points for each contact. And this year our club was on again for the first time in three years. And the guy behind me, who's new to the hobby was doing FT8, but I could feel his eyes burning through my shoulder because he was just astounded what we were doing on CW. But we really got a gift this year because one of our new hams is very aggressive He's been licensed less than a year, but he got on the go-to station. So everything he did was five points. Even with our uh, simple offerings this year with inverted Vs, we did pretty doggone well. I was very pleased with how we did. But Morse code is, is my favorite mode. Uh, how about a band? Do you have a favorite band that you operate on? Well, 80 and 40, 80 for the gang, 40 because it's just a great band. I've never been on 30 yet. I've never been on 17 yet. I've only been on 10 a couple of times. Of course, 20 and 15 are great bands if you want to do word and DX and stuff. But I, I'd rather talk to people. I'm not really into the yeah, 599, goodbye, you know. Well, fine, you know. That's just not my idea of ham radio. But, it, hey, that's the great thing about ham radio. It's different strokes, every throats. And most of the gang down here are not just contesters, but they're avid contesters. They've been on some of the D expeditions that you've seen in the QSD. They, they've been on, on them, so... And the GD gang again, of course, for the one for the top band, they're they're truly heavy hitters. There's no doubt about that. What's the furthest you've contacted? Russia. While I was driving to my brother's, year 2000, I'm in my old minivan, and that was the peak of solar. I was I was 30 over nine in Russia using the the hustler on 20 meters on code. You know, going through Massachusetts. So I haven't done any uh, satellite yet. I haven't talked to the space station or whatever, but that that's something I'd like to do. Now, of course, now with the digital modes, one of the strengths of digital, you could do moon bounce without having a killer antenna or killer power. So that'd be fun to do just to show people you can bounce yourself off the moon and go, go half a million miles round trip, you know? And technical, I, I, I enjoyed the technical sides of the hobby too. And I just had a Swan 500 here this morning from one of my friends and blew a couple of diodes in the power supply. So I gave that back to him this afternoon. 
So are you a home brewer? Not really. Um, what I've, whatever I've done homebrew is more of like cookbooking. I, we're going to have a fox hunt down here on the 28th. And I have modified some rigs. So it'll take external audio and external push to talk. And I've got timer circuits set up and so forth. So it'll automatically come up by itself and stay on for a minute with a voicer and then shut down for several. I've got I actually got three complete setups. So depending on what we do on the 28th, we may do one near field and one far field. We'll see. And we've I've helped some of the guys build the tape dipoles. In fact, Nancy's is half done. We have to finish building hers yet. And I'm showing them how, yeah, I see it. <laughs> um, you know, and you have to have an attenuator or an offset or one of my friends just picked up a small spectrum analyzer for uh, 120 bucks that he's gotten mounted. So hopefully if the weather's good, we'll have a fun time. And of course it teaches them a lot about the directivity of antennas too, like, you know, spinning it around backwards, you get the null. So yeah. we'll see. And the high school kids are supposed to be involved with it too. So oh, that's, that's great. There's nothing like hands-on to sucker people into things. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, I've I've found uh, there's a local club here that does fox hunts. Uh, they try yeah. to do them once a month between the months of April. Oh, that's and good. October. Well, we've never done it down here. Oh. And old Barney, old Barney Amateur Radio Club is getting older, unfortunately. A lot of times for them, their activities get out of the house and drink coffee, eat donuts, and get away from the the Y L for three hours or something. We're trying to get some fire into people's posteriors, but it's oh, that's tough. That's great. Since you've been licensed, how have you seen ham radio change? Well, depending on your frame of reference for the better and for the worst, certainly our numbers have stayed about the same. And there's plenty of more opportunities, if, depending on what your druthers are. And of course, computers are an integral part of ham radio now. And that's one of the ways you get kids involved. I'm not real keen about people just memorizing the answers to the questions and getting their licenses because they're almost worse than sea beers in the sense that some of the sea beers at least knew something. We have people that have gotten their licenses and actually never got on the air or people that have learned a license and doesn't even know why you'd have to tune a radio. So, you know, what we're trying to do back with the high school, they just got a grant from the leg last year and they have a rig that I could never even dream to buy. But we're trying this year to actually not just get them ready for their licenses, but to give them not quite a crash course, but certainly put some backing to the answers of the questions rather than just remember it's it's letter to C. So for, that's discouraging. And I could say some of the conduct of people on air, although that's been there as long as I can remember. I mean, unfortunately, some of the gang on 80, they were, they were crude and rude back in the 60s. In fact, they get visited by Popkins and Roberts. Joe can tell you plenty of stories about some of the gang, you know, because there were 15-inch reels on people and justifiably so. But uh it's like anything else. There's always bad apples and it's a wonderful hobby and we need to protect the frequencies. We need to have a certain number of people. I understand all that. So what we need to do is be the thermostats and control the temperature, not the thermometers that just report it. We need to control the on-air countenance of people, especially when you're talking overseas that Americans don't become these big jerks, but even locally being an Elmer, Joe's a great example of that. And of course you have people like Luke where it's, it's, it's a reward in its own site that you see that there's actually fruit flavors and your nine, eight, five breakfasts are a classic example of, it's not just a hobby. It's, it's a, it's a family. And I, I think the dinner I'm looking, I guess it's next week. You're having the, the, the breakfast. So I only get up once or twice a year. So I don't know if I'll make this one or not, but it, ham radio is a is a family. It's a dysfunctional family, like everybody else. But uh, what we can do is we want to we want to make sure that what we present is the best that we can for a really wonderful hobby, and it's a great privilege to have it. So you had mentioned uh, about involving the high schoolers. What are some other things that we can do to involve younger generations, not just kids, but younger generations? Well. I had hoped that one of the incentives down here was after Sandy because everything shut down. In fact, I would drive around in the daytime to each of the towns to get information to put air on, put on air that night. And they're saying, well, it's on our website. There is no website. There's no internet. There's no power. There are not people home. I had hoped that they would have realized the importance of the fact that all the towns down here have emergency operations center was with two meters NHF and doing an emergency. All they had to do is light up two meters. Like it taken straight to air. 
And some of the gang that are in OBARC now are involved with emergency management and so and they have seen the failures that have happened. And that's why they've gotten involved. So that's a good thing. There are so many things vying for people's time nowadays. Everybody's overworked. Everybody's too busy and drawn different places. And of course, for the kids, well, I can get on the internet and be around the world right now. What's the big deal? Ham radio. Yeah, we'll pull your cable and then see where this is point to point. See, it's, it's kind of like a church. When you want to have a bus ministry, you have to sell it to the congregation. They don't understand why you need a bus, you know? Well, with ham radio, you need to sell. Here's, here's why ham radio is better than CB. Here's why ham radio is so important. In fact, in spite of all of the backups we have with the internet and all that, because when they go down, and I'm sure right now in Israel that ham radio is playing a part where there's things that are blown up. I don't know that for a fact, but I can bet you that there is. So sometimes necessity is the mother of invention, but it's our responsibility, especially when we've been in it so long. We can't be saying, I wish the day would do this or I wish the day would, not, would do that. We're the they. And we have to make the case and spend the time investing in people, being mentors, not tour mentors, but uh, being mentors to show them this is, you don't want, you, you don't sucker people into stuff that's not worth learning. You know, I love to sail. I love to teach people about sailing. I'm obvious, my radio station is a Christian radio station because I'm trying to tell people what the gospel is. And it's very important. Uh, I do ham radio because it's a great hobby. And actually for me, well, Chuck will tell you everything in his life started with ham radio, including Patty, you know, he, he met me through ham radio. He came to my church, he met Patty. So, and then trans world, it just goes on and on. So, and that's one of the things too. Ham radio is just not geeks and techno people. There's, there's all kinds of stories between doctors and lawyers and, you know, Barry Goldwater, if it was pre all of many of the reporters, and of course, most of the astronauts on the ISS, they're, they're ham operators. So that's how you play it. Like, Hey, you, you want to join an in crowd? You want to, you want to be able to talk to a, the reporter you watch or an astronaut on the ISS? Well, here's how you can do it. You know, you got to sell it. You know, and I don't mean I'm a lousy salesman, but that's what you want to do. How did you get involved in bringing the high schoolers in for your fox hunt? Well, the high school station has been there for a number of years. Jim Smith was the first, and then uh, it, was, it was a latency after he left. And then John Tishy, who was the guy that I just fixed his swan this morning, uh, he was a teacher at Southern for a while. I mean, John, he, he's carte blanche. Everybody at Southern knows John, and he's just gold-plated. Um, he was involved with the kids, just like Jim was. And then Cheryl... She actually had the hand club before they even had any antennas and stuff because after Sandy, they all got blown down. And for two years, she was trying to have hand club. She's a new ham herself, uh, Cheryl Conley. She's an English teacher. Um, but the club has been there for a number of years. They now have their own call. And there's several of us who try to make sure that we get there each month. I was intending to be there on time today, but then the transmitter issues came up. So when I got there, they were wrapping up. Uh, they meet once a month and then other times they can, you don't have to schedule an official meeting for them to get on the air. So, but obviously we all know that the, the, the life of anything in the next generation is the next generation. So you've got to get them involved or it'll just die without uh, without uh, passing on the baton or the seed or whatever you want to say. Need to, it's not optional. What recommendations do you have for somebody entering the hobby or somebody returning to the hobby? First of all, do it. And you don't learn anything overnight instant. You know, I tell the I tell the church gang, for example, there's no such thing as instant Christianity. You can't skip grades either. Uh, there's there are steps. You might take a course at a different time, but there are certain courses we all have to take to make ourselves balanced. And with ham radio, the first thing to do is there's some great books and there's great tools online and there's teaching things. But first of all, what is ham radio? Look and see what it is. Look at what people are doing. And many times what people don't think that they'll be interested in, they find out later on, not only are they interested, but it's passionate. Other things they thought that they loved, they say, eh. So you got to, Ohm's law is the basics. Well, like anything else, you've got to make your first step. Make the first step. And it's building blocks. Let, let the foundation and the building blocks grow. Surround yourself with good people that will mentor you and can save you a lot of time, like how to cut back coax when you're making up dipoles. Uh, it's really not brain surgery. It, it, you're entering a new field, hobby, whatever. 
also that's what it is folks it's a hobby it should not be an obsession it shouldn't ruin your bank account or your interpersonal relationships i look at some of these shacks where they have 40 50 foot rooms loaded with equipment and they have eight towers outside and then well okay i mean some of these people can afford to do it as well but for, for most of us the john q public get real and don't be unreal be an asset don't be don't split it into the two words, you know? That's good advice. I like that. So obviously you're a sailor. You've talked about that. Mm. What else do you do for fun that's not ham radio? Well, sailing is a lot of it. Between uh, sailing and ham radio and YRS, that's my life in many respects is routine, but that does not mean it's boring. I, I learned the one four-letter word they did not use at NJN. I, I won't say it, but I'll just spell it. It's P L. A and because every time I P L A N by breakfast time, something says, really, guess what you're doing today? Uh, Nancy is a cheap date. Just taking her a walk out to the mailbox is, is a big deal. Of course, her knees are in bad shape right now, too. But we used to do a lot of hiking through the woods that she can't do right now. I used to camp a lot and I did get one day in last week down at the site. I hope to do more in October. I have a picnic area down there and a couple fire pits. And a couple of my friends, I want to get down from Pensy before it gets too cold. So my dad took us camping a lot. I would have loved to have flown, but I'm legally blind in my left eye. And they nixed me in the 70s. So I sometimes use flight simulator. I like to read when I get the time and I don't have enough time for that. And of course, my church activities take a lot of time too. There's, there's, not a, there's never a lack of things to do. And I'll tell you what, though I'm technically retired, people who really retire they're dead in five years. I mean, if you don't have something, and if, you, if you're just watching TV and shopping and playing golf, oops, I shouldn't say playing golf, I guess, but, uh, you know, do something, get involved with people and mentor. And there's not, I can't think of anything much more rewarding than mentoring people of what you've learned. And we're in a time that you go into a restaurant and the whole family's there with their faces in a cell phone and they've got thousands of friends. Oh, really? You don't even know what the real name is. Let's get back to the art of meaningful confrontational dialogue with an eyeball. You know, uh, I want to see you. I want to see your body language. I want to hear you. And I want to do stuff with you, not to you. <laughs> you know, it's how about we just get back to basics? You know, that, that wouldn't be a bad deal. And of course, it's, it's, there's a rising tide now. People are realizing how technology has become a monster. Even Chuck would tell you with Transworld, people would look at the transmitters and the massive antennas and all that. He says, you know, when they forget it's about people, they forgot the whole reason we're here. It's all about people. And really, when we leave, we can't take anything with us, but you can, you can send people along the same path. So. What do you want to do when you grow up? Well, first of all, I refuse to, because when you grow up, you have to remain that. And the only difference between a kid and an adult is an adult can't shirk the responsibilities. A kid can pass them off. We don't feel any more qualified to deal with issues now than we did when we were teenagers. It's just now you have to, you know, <laughs> let's work the problem, people. Let's not make a bad situation worse by guessing what we got in the ship. It's still good. The problem with people, people complain about getting old. Well, there are others who have not had that privilege. And aging gracefully is not simple words. And now in my 70s, I can see a horizon. And when a, ten a tenth of my class is dead at the last reunion and you watch others coming on a walker's wheelchairs and canes, you want to be great. Somebody once said, if you have your health, you have everything. Um, I think every day is a gift. In fact, before the news hits at 6 a.m. here, I have a cart that runs yesterday's history, tomorrow's mystery. Today's a gift. That's what they call it, the present, you know? So we should, my uh, simple prayer at breakfast each day, Lord, thank you for this food and thank you for another day. So, so we need to, life's a gift. And when we forget that, shame on us. And when you, you want to complain, spend three hours at Chop in Philly. You'll shut up real fast, real fast. I have a lady on my air who's been in a wheelchair for 52 years. She dove into a lake at 50, at, at age 17. They, she was at a conference where the ladies are complaining about the seating. And she says, I'll handle this. So she goes out on the, on the stage. She's a quadriplegic. And she says, I understand some of you don't like the chair you're sitting in. <laughs> well, she made her point, you know. WA3CAO, Tony McCluskey, one of our longtime friends in Concha Hawkins, has been blind his whole life. Others are deaf. Others are paralyzed. You know, um, we're blessed. 
And the handicapped people call us tabs, temporarily able-bodied. Be grateful for every day and everything. Hey, Johnny Erickson, Todd, I can't even scratch, you know? So I'm blessed. Now, I'm legally blind in my last eye. So is my brother, but we were born premature. And they found out about two months before we were born that they were putting preemies in uh, isolates with pure oxygen. And that was causing detached retinas. Well, that's why WA3CAO is looking through wax paper because they didn't find out in time for him. So we were, we had, we both had crossed eyes. So legally we have a mental block and also lazy eyes, which uh, we, we can, our side vision is normal. We could never read or drive, drive whatever, but um, it hasn't restricted us. The only thing I couldn't do was line up the two pencils for my driving test. I had no, uh, no, no reference point, but we're blessed. We know it. And we're very grateful. Both Bill and I are grateful. Thank you. If you were to describe yourself as an animal, what would it be and why? From the Christian perspective, we're called sheep because we're supposed to follow a leader. Uh, but I think a dog. Somebody once said, you know, when people yell at you and don't feed you and leave you out in the cold and all that, and you still love them and care for them, you're really spiritual, aren't you? No, you're, you're just a dog, you know. But dog is really a man's best friend when it comes to animals. So I, I guess... Uh, I guess a dog. Do you have a dog? No, don't have time. to. Every dog deserves a people. I had uh, a mutt when we were growing up. His name was Jose, and he got in more trouble. He wasn't a sickly dog. He just got himself in trouble all the time, you know. Um, ask Bert about Jose. And we had a cat that we got third hand. Her, her name was Mommy Cat because she had been named Mommy because she had a bunch of kittens underneath Miss Elsie Eesval's step. So second grade, where I'm learning how to build things and, um, you know, kids build dog houses for their dogs. Well, I I built a cat house for the cat who was named Mommy. So I went to second grade PT at school and I told my teacher I built a cat house for Mommy. And that brought up some interesting <laughs> questions at the next, next PTA meeting. Like, Mrs. Wick, um, it, it all had an explanation, but yeah. So we had a dog and then my dad... Um, he loved mammals more than any four-legged mammal was much easier to love than the two. He, he had a horse, but then his last dog was named Lucky, which was 90% shepherd and 10% collie. He couldn't even do a 360 without knocking everything off the coffee table because he was so big, but he was an absolute love and it was the right dog for them at the end there. But yeah, love, I love animals. Sometimes I'll borrow them but we don't, we can't give the time for them. Our house is small and Nancy's allergic to fur anyway. And don't even mention the CAT because they're, they're non, one of our preachers on air. A kid asked for, are there, cat, are there animals in heaven? Oh yeah. There's horses. Jesus talks about Jesus riding a horse and uh, the dogs. Sure. Dogs, you know, dogs get in the front of the line. Cats. No way. <laughs> no way. So sorry, cat lovers, but uh, uh, yep. Well, that's great. Well, Bob, thank you very much for joining me tonight. This was very yeah. enjoyable. Thank you for the privilege. I had a great time learning about you, and I hope everybody else did as well. So I will say 73. And I'll say 73 to you, and uh, maybe I'll see you at the winter field day. It looks like it's going to happen. It's definitely going to happen. Looking forward to it. Thank you for listening to the 985 Nerds Podcast. Check back again for other 985 Nerd Conversations. Have a hamtastic day.